0: Hello, Shiver Seekers. Are you ready to follow us into the unknown? I'm Cynthia. And I'm Stephanie. And you have found the Dark Oak. Today we explore the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome to the Dark Oak, the mystery podcast with purpose. Each month through the Branch of Hope Fund, we give a portion of earnings from our Patreon and sponsors to a nonprofit organization related to the first two episodes of the month. To find out how to be a part of the movement, head over to thedarkoak.com or stay with us until the end of the episode and we will give you all of the details. Well, thank you, Cynthia. Today we're going to touch on some topics that are a little bit heavy for us. We always try to humanize victims here and really tell their story, but these deal with several civil rights and justices, which are so hard for me to talk about because they're just so incredibly senseless. Right, right. There's just no justification whatsoever. There's no justification. And really, when you start looking at these dates, several of the issues I'm talking about happened in the 60s. That's not that long ago. No, it's during my parents' lifetime. Right. Which is insane to think about. And several people involved in these cases are still alive. Wow. And still have memories. This 16th Street bombing, I know I told you that I wanted to cover it and you already got emotional about it because (laughs) it does deal with the senseless murder of children. This is going to be a little heavy for us, but it's such an important topic for us to cover. really brings to light things we cannot forget. I think that we can move on from them, but we can't forget them because to to forget them and to forget the senseless murders of these innocent victims really does a disservice to everyone, in my opinion. I'm with you. I'm 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 already have tears. She already her eyes. has tears in her eyes. Um, and, I will be strong. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, really tough. I know you're already tearing up, so I'm just going to get right to it. On September 15, 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, the lives of Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson, all age 14, and little Carol Denise McNair, age 11, would come to an end. A splinter group of the KKK, known as the Cahaba River Bridge Boys, would make sure of this. Mm. It's just devastating. They were self-named because of their clandestine meetings were held under this bridge that crossed over the Cahaba River. And the group plotted beatings, acts of intimidation that they called missionary missions. Oh, my gosh. To make it even worse. I mean, what are... I'm so angry already. Angry. <laughs> You're a minute in. Yeah, exactly. And they ultimately planned to bomb this church. They chose this church because it had been the hub of a lot of civil rights activity in Birmingham, and they just couldn't handle it. So a bomb, which was made up of a minimum of 15 sticks of dynamite. Wow. 15 sticks of dynamite. Wow. Actually, even saying sticks of dynamite, I literally am like, it's like a cartoon. I know. <laughs> I, well, that's what I was thinking. Where do you even get a stick of dynamite? Well, somehow these guys figured out how to do it. Wow. They hid these sticks of dynamite attached to a time delay under the concrete steps of the church. Okay. And at approximately 1022 a.m., an anonymous man phoned the 16th Street Baptist Church. The call was answered by the acting Sunday school secretary, a sweet little 14-year-old girl oh. named Carolyn Mall. The anonymous caller simply said the words, three minutes to Mall and then hung up. Less than one minute later, the bomb exploded. Oh, okay. Yeah. Five children, children were in the basement at the time of the explosion. They were in a restroom close to the stairwell, and they were changing into their choir robes in preparation for the 11 a.m. sermon entitled A Rock That Will Not Roll. The explosion blew a hole measuring seven feet in diameter in the church's rear wall and a crater five feet wide and two feet deep in the ladies' basement lounge, destroying the rear steps of the church and blowing a passing motorist out of his car. Wow. A huge explosion. Several other cars parked near the site of the blast were destroyed and windows of properties located more than 2 blocks from the church were also damaged all but one of the church's stained glass windows were destroyed in the explosion the sole stained glass window largely undamaged in the explosion if you're not already crying we which brought, i am we should have brought <laughs> tissues in today the largely undamaged window the sole undamaged window depicts Christ leading a group of young children. Hundreds of individuals, some of them lightly wounded, converged on the church to search the debris for survivors as police erected barricades around the church. Beneath piles of debris in the church basement, the dead bodies of the four girls, Addie May, Cynthia, Carol, and Denise were discovered. The explosion was so intense that one of the girl's bodies was decapitated and so badly mutilated that her body could only be identified through her clothing and a ring. Oh, my gosh. It's horrible. Horrible. <sighs> Another victim was killed by a piece of mortar embedded in her skull. Between 14 and 22 additional people were injured in the explosion, one of whom was Addie Mae's younger sister, 12-year-old Sarah Collins. Remember, there were five children in the bathroom. She was the fifth. She was the only survivor. And her life has been really difficult, as you can imagine. Oh, sure. She had 21 pieces of glass embedded in her face and was blinded in one eye. In her later recollections of the bombing, Sarah would recall that in the moments immediately before the explosion, she had watched her sister Addie tying her dress sash. That was the last thing she remembered seeing. Barbara Cross, the Reverend's eldest daughter, said, I will never forget the horrific noise. I remember everything got real dark and you could hear kids screaming. Oh, my gosh. Initially, investigators theorized that the bomb thrown from the passing car had caused the explosion in the 16th Street Baptist Church. But within a few days, the FBI was able to confirm that the explosion had been caused by a device that was purposely planted beneath the stairwell. Within days of the bombing, investigators began to focus their attention upon the KKK splinter group, the Cahaba Boys. The Cahaba Boys had only formed a few years earlier as they felt the KKK was becoming soft when it came to fighting the end of racial segregation. So if that gives you any idea as to where these guys heads were, they thought the KKK was too soft wow. on persons of color. Are we going to learn more about the members of this group, like their ages and stuff like that? A little. I try not to focus too much okay. on them, truly, um, and more on the victims. Okay. But... Middle aged white men. Oh my gosh. That's essentially who they were. By this time, this group had already previously been linked to several other bomb attacks on Black owned businesses and the homes of Black community leaders throughout the spring and summer of 1963. Although the Cahaba boys had fewer than 30 active members, Mm -hmm. I don't know, 30 seems a lot to me though. (laughs) That seems like a lot for, for this amount of hate. A lot of middle aged white men killing children. Like, not okay. I'm so angry. (laughs) Yeah. So angry right now. Yeah. Among them were specific persons of interest named Thomas Blanton, Herman Cash, Robert Dynamite Bob Chablis. Wow. And Bobby Cherry. Investigators also gathered numerous witness statements. Attesting to the group of white men and a turquoise 1957 Chevrolet who had been seen near the church in the early hours of the morning of September 15th. These witness statements specifically indicated that a white man, which could have been either Cherry or Chablis, had exited the car and walked towards the steps of the church. I'm already feeling like this is a slam dunk, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, they, they, we've got eyewitnesses. These guys were already suspected of other bombings. And as a matter of fact, this is a total side note. The reason they met under this bridge and had this name was because they knew their houses were being monitored by the FBI because of other bombings. And so they decided to meet in this kind of like clandestine location. Well, when you first mentioned that they met under a bridge, like I wanted to say, okay, anytime you're forced to meet under a bridge, (laughs) you probably should reevaluate Whatever it is you're discussing. But I was like, no, that's that's silly. That's obvious. But I guess it's not like, well, for these guys, it was not. I mean, you they really should have reevaluated Wow, what they were doing here. Chablis was questioned by the FBI on September 26th. On September 29th, he was indicted upon charges of illegally purchasing and transporting dynamite. Hmm. Now, okay, that's fine, but let's get to the bigger indictment, Uh, right? The murder. The murders. The The murders. murders. Exactly. He received a $100 fine, the equivalent of like 900 bucks today, and a suspended 180 day jail sentence. Okay. Okay. I'm like, okay, good start. Where's the rest? Right? Unfortunately, Eyewitnesses were reluctant to talk to investigators about the bombing, and physical evidence was lacking. So, it was making it hard to make a case against him, which these are violent men. And though it's not the right thing to do, I can understand why you might be frightened to speak out against them. Well, as sad as that is, you're absolutely right. Despite this, on May 13th, 1965, local investigators and the FBI formally named Blanton, Cash, Chablis, and Cherry as the perpetrators of the bombing, and Robert Chablis, the likely ringleader of the four. This information was relayed to the director of the FBI, who at the time was J. Edgar Hoover, Mm -hmm. which should already be a red flag. And from there, no prosecution of the four suspects ensued. Wow. I did not realize Hoover had some very strange leanings when I really got into this and he was not about civil justice. Re- okay. So no, we've discussed history isn't like <laughs> my favorite subject. Yeah. So I couldn't tell you too much. Yeah. About I'm not going to name call. I'm not going to speculate. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying racial... Um, equality was not his platform. Okay. I'll just leave it mm, at that. That's, okay. Yeah. Unfortunate. Yeah. And to give you more information, that same year, J. Edgar Hoover formally blocked any impending federal persecution of the suspects and refused to disclose any evidence his agents had obtained from the state or federal prosecutors. Did he say why? It's just done. Just, we're just done with that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so that's kind of all you need to know, right? Okay. In 1968, the FBI formally closed their investigation into the bombing without filing charges against any of the named suspects. The files were sealed by order of J. Edgar Hoover. I have no words. No words! What can you say? Wow, okay. Okay. That would change, however, in January of 1971, when William Baxley was elected attorney general of Alabama. Baxley had been a student at the University of Alabama when he heard about the bombings in 1963 and later recollected, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what. So within a week of being sworn into office, Baxley researched the local police files and officially reopened the case. Wow. Incredible, right? I'm tearing up again because that's amazing. Yeah. So he was able to build trust with key witnesses, some of whom have been reluctant to testify in the first investigation, as we talked about. These are pretty violent men. I would be terrified. Yeah. Other witnesses obtained identified Chablis as the individual who had placed the bomb beneath the building. Baxley also gathered evidence proving Chablis had purchased dynamite from a store in Jefferson County less than two weeks before the bomb was planted. He purchased it under the pretext that dynamite was used to clear some land that the KKK had purchased. This testimony and evidence was used to formally construct a case against Robert Chablis. He's the one whose nickname is dynamite, right? Dynamite Shibley. Dynamite Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Dynamite Bob. Okay. Baxley requested access to the original FBI files in this case. He learned from that that the evidence accumulated by the FBI against the name suspects between 1963 and 1965 had not been revealed to the local prosecutors in Birmingham. So all the information that the FBI obtained, they never gave to local prosecutors. Wow. So yeah. major, major cover up. Major cover up. Absolutely. Oh, man. So, of course, he said, I want this information. And the FBI originally refused. So, Baxley had to threaten to expose the Department of Justice for withholding evidence that could have resulted in the prosecution of the perpetrators of the bombing. And then, in response, Baxley received a good number of FBI documents. Probably not all of them, but a good number. Probably not all of them, but a good number of them. Enough. Uh, okay. But gosh darn, right? No, it's not okay. No, it's just, it's so corrupt. It's just so corrupt. Yeah. And I mean, just a lot of cover up, a lot of backslapping, a lot of, yeah. And these are humans. These are children. These are, yeah, absolutely. I, it's just, it makes me physically feel sick, honestly. Yeah. On September 24th, 1977, as a direct result of Baxley saying, I'm going to do something. Chablis was indicted on four counts of murder, one for each child killed in the bombing. But the judge set aside three of the counts and stated he would only be tried on one. Why? Uh no explanation was given. He just said, we're just gonna set those aside. He can only be tried on one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I if he, you know, depending on if he's convicted, what his punishment is, like it may not matter, but for those families. It would matter. That's exactly how I felt. Because if he's going to be found guilty of one, he'll be found guilty of all of them. Right. Correct? So it may not make a change in his, like, his conviction and therefore his sentence. Right. However, those families deserve justice, too. Right. Right. It's just a matter of principle. I feel the same way. So he was only tried on the death of Carol Denise McNair. Remember, she was the youngest. Yeah. Yeah. Following the closing arguments, the jury retired to begin their deliberations, which lasted for over six hours and continued into the following day. Okay. Um, to me, this seems like, how can it take that long to <laughs> figure out this? Well, conviction? you know what? When you said over six hours, in my mind, I was processing it. Like only six hours because I read somewhere or heard something. And these are, of course, modern day cases that this statement is based upon. But the longer a jury takes to deliberate, the higher the chances of a a guilty verdict. Oh, is that true? Mm-hmm. Oh, because I guess if you're going to find somebody guilty... You want to really go over every little thing and be very confident. So like when a, when a verdict comes back after just a couple of hours, that can often lead to an innocent verdict. So I, it's funny because I interpreted it the exact opposite that you did, like (laughs) only six hours. (laughs) I'm like, he's guilty. He's guilty. We don't even need to slam the gavel. (laughs) We don't even need to discuss this. I can tell you right now. Exactly. Exactly. On November 18, 1977, they found Robert Chablis guilty of the murder of Carol Denise McNair, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment for her murder. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness. But again, he should have been convicted on more than one. I imagine as a, a family member of a loved one, I would just I would just want to know that he was held responsible. Yeah. Now, remember, he was only one of four. Right. Same suspects. So however. I wonder if maybe they're each going to be tried for one. Well, there's more more evolution here okay. as we go through okay. the decades. I won't jump ahead. But he was known as being the ringleader. Sure. I mean, dynamite Bob. Uh, right. He and purchased the dynamite. He purchased the dynamite. And there were several eyewitnesses that said he was the one that actually had planted the dynamite. Okay. There wasn't any more movement in the case until 1995. Wow. How many, how many years later is that? More than a decade? So, yeah, he was found guilty in 1977. So wow. almost two almost decades, 20 years almost 20 years yeah and the FBI and these guys are just out free absolutely being awful being awful knowing what they have done Ugh. and what I found shocking about this too is none of them had a guilty conscience or if they did it certainly wasn't known none of them came forward and said listen I, I, i've I've grown a conscience I need to tell someone what I did nothing there was no no confessions. But the FBI finally decided maybe we should research this. Oh, maybe we should look into this. Okay. Thank you, FBI. Thank you, FBI, again in 1995. They wound up contacting several different law enforcement branches. So it was a coordinated effort between local, state, and federal governments to review cold cases of the civil rights era in hopes of prosecuting perpetrators. So that's amazing. It is amazing. I'm glad we've evolved. We are making progress. (laughs) Yes. Small steps, right? They unsealed 9,000 pieces of evidence previously gathered by the FBI in the 1960s. And many of these documents related straight to the 16th Street Church Baptist bombing And they had not been available to Baxley back in the 1970s. Wow. Wow. Remember I said they gave him some. Right. So think
1: about how much better his
0: case would have been. Right. If they had just given it to him. Maybe, maybe uh, Shibley could have been convicted of all four murders. Absolutely. Well, maybe. I don't know. Because the judge just threw out the other three. But whatever it is. This is, I mean, again, the 70s, the 90s. Right. This is not the, that long right, ago. The ni- that's what's crazy to me is the 90s. I mean, I was alive in the 90s. Yes, I was thriving in the <laughs> 90s. That was my decade.
1: Yeah, And, and uh, uh, this
0: is just now. People are just now looking into providing justice for these families. That's insane. And honestly, and I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I don't think I realized that. Yeah. It's really eye opening. And again, this is heavier material than we normally cover. A lot of our cases are twisty and turny and, you know, head scratchers. This one is a little bit more straightforward, but it's such important information to make sure we don't forget and that we're always remembering that we need to do better. Let's always just do better. Let's always be evolving. We have to look back in order to look forward. Sure. In May of 2000, the FBI publicly announced their findings that the 16th street Baptist church bombing had been committed by four members of the KKK splinter group known as the Cahaba boys. The four individuals named in the FBI report were the original suspects. Wow. From the sixties. Mm-hmm. Blanton, cash, Chablis and Cherry. By the time of the announcement, Herman cash had already died, but Thomas Blanton and Bob cherry were still alive and both were immediately arrested. And at this point, if they were middle-aged back in the 60s, they're what, 80s, 90s? Yeah. I mean, they're older. I think they were in their 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah, in their 60s and 70s. Now, both stood trial and each were convicted of four counts of murder. Okay. Thank God. Which resulted in life imprisonment for both. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1963, the 16th Street Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, was meant to disparage Blacks from seeking equality and freedom and propel fear and instill hopelessness. But the opposite became true. Outrage over the death of the four young girls helped build increased support behind the continuing struggle to end segregation, support that would lead to the passage of both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But in that sense, the bombing's impact was exactly the opposite of what its perpetrators had intended. So there were some awful people out there making some awful choices doing some awful things, but there were good people too. Yes. It's it's like Fred Rogers always says to look for the helpers, you know, and I feel like that you have, when horrible things happen, you need to look for the helpers. And there were plenty of advocates out there really trying to make a difference. And these two acts really show that. Mm -hmm. So why is the story important in a lot of ways, socially, historically, ethically, and also it pertains to this podcast, it's criminally important. It's not a mystery, no. But what has happened is because this has been open and closed and open and closed, and it's decades of trying to solve the crime, people like the prosecutor William Baxley and others hadn't come along. The four girls and their families would have never been given justice. The U.S. government realized this. And in 2008, the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act was passed and signed into law on October 7th. It allows the reopening of cold cases of suspected violent crimes committed against African-Americans before 1970. Wow. Which is incredible. Right. Now, the bill was named for Emmett Till. That name sounds familiar. He is really the face of. Civil rights and justices. He was a 14 year old black boy from Chicago who, in the summer of 1955, was visiting family in Mississippi. And he was accused of whistling at or flirting with a young married white woman in the grocery store. As a result, he was abducted, beaten, mutilated, shot in the head, and thrown in the river with his body weighted down. A 14 year old. A 14 year old. Emmett's murderers were tried but were acquitted by an all-white jury. Yeah. I have no words again. Yeah. The two men later confessed to killing Emmett in an interview with Life magazine. They were never retried or convicted for his murder. And years later, the young white woman also said she had made it all up. (gasps) Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So I mean not that it mattered even if he'd done it. Not that it, it mattered but even just, if he had done even, it. Even she lied. She just lied. And yeah, so many things. And they they I can't confessed. even really dissect this yeah, because there are so many so many errors and what happened. And none of these people feel even like an ounce of remorse. I mean, I don't know how you would live with that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So this legislation was rightly named for Emmett Till because his case is a famous example of a racial killing for which no one was successfully tried. And the bill works towards gathering more information on unsolved cases to uncover answers for family members and solve crimes using new information. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's encouraging. Yes. That's why I found this very encouraging. So not only were there prosecutors like Baxley who are trying to move the ball uphill, but now you have this new act that's going to allow us to go back and solve some of these you know, racially motivated violent crimes. This act can effectively reopen any case of a crime related to civil rights violations committed before December 3rd, 1969. Unfortunately, this still doesn't mean that many cases get solved or that justice is served. However, because in many cases, eyewitnesses and suspects have passed away, right, and evidence is lost, but it still gives prosecutors a shot, right? It still leaves an opening, but it still makes me so angry. People got to just live their lives. Even these guys, who, you know, in this splinter group with the bombing, they That's- still lived for decades, free, exactly right? Exactly, right. Like they right. got decades. Yeah, and then Herman Cash had passed away. He, he never saw. He lived his whole life, never saw justice. And now, of course, his name is linked with it. Mm-hmm. And so he has left this legacy of, right. you know, being this, you know, racist jerk. But, yeah, I mean, in his lifetime, he never had to face any um, you know, any kind of prosecution for it. Right. Now, one of these reopened cases is the murder of O'Neill Moore. Now, O'Neill Moore was the first African-American deputy sheriff for the Washington Parish Sheriff's Office in Bernardo, Louisiana, and he was appointed on June 2nd, 1964, along with another Black man named Creed Rogers. Now, hatred for O'Neill began well before he was even appointed as deputy. During the 1960 and 1964 elections for sheriff in the Washington Parish, The KKK ran its own candidate against the incumbent Sheriff Dorman Crow. They used various tactics to try to beat him, but came up short both times. The Klan wanted its own man in office to preserve segregation. Right. That's not a terrifying thought at all. (laughs) Right. Exactly. To the Klan, it was an insult for a Black man to have the ability to arrest a white man. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I know. Just eye roll, sigh, sigh. You've got to be kidding me. And even worse, they couldn't imagine a Black man arresting a white woman. Like, we need all this additional I mean, it's, like, so absurd. It's just so. (laughs) Yeah, it's so absurd. It was essentially the ultimate insult that any Black man would have the power of the law behind him because it had never been so. So when Sheriff Crow was seeking re-election in 1964, he again sought support of the Black community, you know, You support me, I'll support you, right? And he promised that if he was reelected, he would hire two Black deputies. So when he was reelected, he kept his promise and hired O'Neill Moore and Creed Rogers as the first two Black deputies in the history of the parish. O'Neill was a 34-year-old Army veteran who had distinguished himself as a leader in the church, his local fraternity lodge, and the PTA. He was also a doting husband and father of four little girls. Oh, no. And when I say little, I mean little. They were all under the age of nine. Mm-hmm. Little girls. O'Neil knew he had put himself and his family at risk by accepting the job. And he tried to be cautious while many other Black residents were marching and picketing because, again, the civil rights movement is really starting to take hold right now. He tried to avoid all of those civil rights activities because he knew he was already in the crosshairs of the KKK because of what he stood for. As if it wasn't already a dangerous job. Take your race out of it. Exactly. (laughs) Already a dangerous job. That's exactly right. And I read a quote by his wife. It was just so sweet. She said, we were so proud that he was the first Black deputy. And we were just tickled that he drove up in his car and was wearing his uniform. They were just so incredibly proud of him. But the Klan was just not having it. Exactly a year after the two deputies were appointed, They were heading home for a late dinner when they received a call about a brush fire. After responding to the call, they noticed they were being followed by a dark-colored pickup truck with a Confederate flag decal on the bumper. As the pickup passed their vehicle, the occupants in the truck fired several gunshots at O'Neill and Creed. O'Neill was shot in the head and killed instantly. Creed was wounded in the shoulder and blinded in one eye, but he managed to broadcast a description of the vehicle on the police radio way to go dude yeah according to the doj memo about the case approximately an hour after the incident authorities stopped a truck that fit the description of the pickup in Tylertown, mississippi they arrested the driver ernest rayford McElvine, a paper mill worker and known clan member who drove a dark color pickup truck with a confederate flag decal on the side the memo notes that mckelveen Told law enforcement he was at a secret meeting the night of O'Neill's murder, but did not provide any other details. Here's the deal. He probably was at a kind of secret meeting that then led to him going and shooting O'Neill. That's my thought. I was like, um, that's motive, not, not an alibi. <laughs> it's exactly right. In searching the truck, officials found several firearms, ammunition, and a rope noose. Mm. McElveen was charged with O'Neill's murder and booked on a $25,000 bond. Two nights after the deputies were shot, six bullets sprayed the home of Doyle Holiday, Washington Parish's chief duty sheriff, a white man who was investigating O'Neill's murder. While no one was injured, it sent in a clear message of intent. They did not want this to be solved. And this is just a white dude that's just investigating the murder and he was almost a victim himself i'll tell you it's just lawless clan members are terrifying people oh uh, yes they are just terrifying yeah mcallvin was released 9 days later after known clan members raised the funds to post bail mm An autopsy confirmed that Moore's death was caused by a high-powered rifle, according to a DOJ memo, but found that the murder weapon couldn't have been among those discovered in McElveen's car. Charges against McElveen were eventually dropped. What? Due to insufficient evidence. Oh, okay. So he couldn't have had somebody else in his car. No. He couldn't have um, dumped the murder weapon. As any smart criminal would. I mean, they found a noose in his car and countless weapons, like guns, but it wasn't the weapon, according to this investigation. Which, okay, I understand. If there's a murder and you can't find the matching weapon, okay, like, we have to take that into account. But, like, there's a lot of other yes evidence here. There were several people in the vehicle. Right. So they weren't in the vehicle when they arrested him, so someone could have just taken that weapon with them. Right. Yeah. No, we're not even trying here. We're not even <laughs> not trying. Even trying. I, I think that's the, ge- that's kind of the, uh that's the trend mm-hmm. that we're seeing here. Right. right. That's the undercurrent of all of this is mm-hmm. we're not even putting in effort to try to solve these. The FBI then conducted a two year investigation into the case, interviewing more than 1,400 people and generating more than 2,000 reports. Multiple suspects were investigated, including many of the men who posted bail for McElveen, as well as other known Klan members in the area. According to, again, this DOJ memo, one of the major roadblocks in investigating the case at the time was fear of retaliation from the Klan, which we're coming back to. And I think is a very... Just as, like, a citizen, that would be a very valid fear. These are terrifying, lawless people, like you said, just lawless. Yeah, lawless. They'll do anything. Lawless. Yeah. Yeah, Doyle Holiday, the same investigator that was shot Mm -hmm. at two weeks after. In his home. In his home. Exactly. He said, quote, Years ago, the Klan was so strong that the people would not open their mouths. They would not give you a lead on anything for fear of their house being burnt or some members of their family being hurt or something to that effect. Back then, they didn't want anything to do with the FBI, the state police, or the local police. End quote. And I see it. I see right. It doesn't make it right, but I, you know, as a parent to know that, you know. My kid could be playing in my living room and somebody just drive by and shoot up my house. Yeah. Or burn it down. Or, right. Um, I but mean, those are really, valid fears. Like, you know, we talked about the, with the solder children, how there was possibly, you know, a mafia involvement, mm-hmm. you know, a, an Italian mafia involvement. Here we are. I mean, it's our own mafia. Right. American mafia. <laughs> it's no, it, vigilante, yeah. vigilanteism. <sighs> I mean, it's because you, dislike somebody's skin color oh, like yeah. you don't even stand for anything you oh don't don't absolutely for anything good it's like so stupid at least stand on solid ground stand up for something right yeah like stand up for something good this is just hate just this is hate. just pure hate it's just based hate. on nothing despite a $25,000 reward offered by the Louisiana governor this case was closed without any prosecution in 1967 Again, I just feel so bad for his family. Oh for well, for both officers' families, but you know, um yeah. Yeah. This case would be open and closed several more times over the years in response to new leads. In 1989, so 20 20 years years later later. the case was reopened by the fbi and designated as a quote major case and a priority investigation in that period the fbi coordinated with the television program unsolved mysteries okay all right and an episode that reenacted the crime the bureau also surveyed suspects and in 1990 subpoenaed multiple witnesses to testify before the grand jury despite these efforts This case was closed again Again? in 1991. Oh, man. This case was reopened in 2001. After many years and multiple investigations, the FBI has identified a, quote, laundry list of alleged perpetrators. Now, I don't know who all these perpetrators could be. Uh, Multiple people even confessed to the crime. But the FBI was unable to procure enough corroborating evidence to prosecute Any single person. Wow. The Bureau continued to pursue O'Neill's case even after McElveen, the main suspect, died in 2003. In 2016, so it was reopened in 2001. Here we are, 2016, citing the, quote, virtual impossibility of prosecuting this case, end quote. A lack of viable leads and a statute of limitations, the FBI closed the case once more. And at that point, it had been 50 years. It been 50 years. Right. For his part, Creed Rogers, the deputy mm-hmm. that was riding along with O'Neill Moore, refused to be frightened away from his police career. Good for him. And in 1988, he retired as a full captain from the sheriff's department. Okay. Crying again. <laughs> again. <sighs> he said, quote, I still wonder who could have done it. And that'll be with me forever. Who could have done that, you know? When people try to kill you and you haven't done anything to them. Why? That never leaves your mind. Sometimes you wonder if they're still out there, still wanting to try it. It's a bad feeling. Mm. My heart breaks for him. Mm -hmm. When he never got justice for himself and for his friend and for his friend. Exactly. O'Neal's widow, Mavella, said of her husband's murder, quote, when they tried to get rid of Creed and O'Neill." It didn't frighten them. It just gave others more courage. By covering this case, I hope that anyone having information will come forward. Seems unlikely at this point, but we are always hopeful. And I feel like if anybody deserves justice, it's certainly O'Neill Moore and his family. He was really trying to do the right thing to serve his people, to serve his community. And, And this is what happened to him, which is... I don't even have the word for it. Again, there are no words. There, for there's really situations. no words. Yeah. These cases. We as a people in a society are moving forward. And a big key to that, in my opinion, is closing some of these cases. Sure. This episode also represents one of our February 2024 Branch of Hope nonprofit organizations. And we've chosen for this case, the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The fund itself is a privately funded nonprofit organization which works to save America's sites. They also do that through telling the full American story which leads to a lot of multicultural opportunities, build stronger communities and it also invests in preservation for the future and the 16th Street Baptist Church receives funds from this organization. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Every year, about 100,000 people come to visit the 16th Street Baptist Church, Mm -hmm. which I understand. I mean, when they want to see part of history, part of their heritage, and there are tours that are put on by the church members. And in addition, the church hosts numerous community events and offers a benevolence ministry that provides emergency financial support for those in need. There's also a fatherhood ministry, which oh. is to educate and mentor young fathers. There's a wall builders program to help with recovering addicts. A lot of good things right. happening at They're the church. They're still doing good. They're still doing good things. They still are... a. a a pillar, really a cornerstone of their community and continuing to do good things. And so this National Trust for Historic Preservation has helped to keep the building in its state where the, the congregants can serve the community. The congregation has completed many critical and expensive repairs to its main building in recent years. Of course, it was repaired from the initial bombing. A lot of community members came together to help with that. And actually, there was a huge donation, believe it or not, from a parish in Ireland that helped to restore their stained glass windows. Oh, Which is really, really beautiful. A $250,000 national grant with $500,000 in matching funds was raised by the congregation. And it supported the critical work on a roof, the foundation, and the exterior of the 16th Street Baptist adjacent parsonage. Along with the installment of a ramp to get in compliance with the American with Disabilities Act. It's a lot of really great things going on there. And by contributing to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, we hope to propel their mission of saving America's historic sites, which really tell the story of our American history. Mm -hmm. And on their website is a beautiful quote by Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. that I'd like to close with. He said, quote, you don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. End quote. Okay, now I'm crying. I managed <laughs> to make it through the episode. Um, but I feel like this applies to so many things. I think it's actually the perfect quote for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, but also for us as a people, you know, we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side, but we have to take these first steps to solve some of these crimes that no one was ever prosecuted for. We knew who did them. We knew the perpetrators, but they were never brought to justice. And to continue to give faces to these victims that created change, Mm -hmm. that helped to propel us forward. And of course, they weren't intentionally martyrs. That's not how they set themselves up. But they they have made others' lives better. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Their lives were stolen from them, but their lives still had great meaning. Absolutely. That's absolutely right still had great purposes, great purposes. Here we are talking about their lives and how important they were and how, again, we need to to do better. And I think that we are. I mean, the FBI in opening these investigations of their own in 1995 and the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act that was passed. I think we are making steps forward. And it's wonderful that this is here, that we can go back and explore some of these unprosecuted cases and see if there's any way we can we can bring closure. Absolutely. That gives me, that gives me, you know, hope. And like you said earlier, encouragement. Yeah. Oh, wow. That was, told uh, you it was really heavy. Unlike Stephanie, I cried the entire episode. <laughs> I told you it's a little bit heavier than we normally cover on this podcast. But once I started going, I just felt compelled that this is what we needed to talk about today. Well, and I think that's part of why it hits so hard is because it is still very relevant. Yes. And it is very important. And that's 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 why it stings. That's why it hurts to hear. Yeah. Because it is still, still relevant. Yeah. Um, if you feel compelled by the story and you would like to help the congregation at the 16th Street Baptist Church, please consider voting for the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And our Branch of Hope Fund uh, poll, if you will, on both our Facebook page and our Twitter page. And Cynthia is going to represent our second nonprofit case next week. Um, where we cover Jennifer Cussie and her scholarship fund. To vote, just head to our Facebook page or Twitter page. Yes, to let us know through our online poll which fund speaks to you. There are no strings attached, no gimmicks. We are simply a podcast leading through words and actions, and we want to make sure your voice is heard. The mysteries we explore bring us excitement, entertainment, and fun, but we want to remember the human side of these events and the branch of hope allows us to do just that. If you love this episode, love us, or love the Branch of Hope, please like and subscribe and tell someone. We're doing good work and we need you to help spread the good word. Forward this episode to a friend who might like it. You can also join our Patreon, which will allow us to keep creating and connecting with you. Easy to do. You go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for The Dark Oak. Please send us an email at thedarkoatpodcast at gmail.com. We are open to your questions, comments, and anything else you want to share. For other ways to connect, hop over to thedarkoak.com. Be sure to follow us to our next episode where we discuss the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie. This is a local case for Stephanie and I. It happened right here in Central Florida. We feel very close to it, and we are really excited to bring you those details back. Maybe we can bring some fresh eyes to the case and maybe help find justice one day for Jennifer and her family. Yeah, I'm excited to hear if you've found out anything new because this one has always haunted me and I feel like it's so solvable. I feel like it's right there, but it's like like you said, it's been 20 years now. Yes. Uh, and or around 20 years, going on yeah. 20 years. And yeah, we uh, Okay, we need we- you all to tune in because we've got to solve this one, guys. We do. <laughs> we do. We <laughs> do. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, Shiver Seekers. You guys rock. Bye. This episode of The Dark Oak was created, researched, written, recorded, hosted, edited, published, and marketed by Cynthia and Stephanie of Just Us Gals Productions and made possible by you, our Shiver Seeking Listener. Special thanks goes to Justice Himes for our incredible artwork and Ryan Crete for our amazing music.